I was encouraged chatting to a primary school teacher this week that my illustrations, that what Mark is doing with us is doing kind of primary one lessons. And I said that the key primary one lesson is look and listen to teacher. And he said, that's exactly right. That's encouraging. I asked them then, were the children looking and listening? And they said, no. (laughs) So look and listen. Now, what Mark is doing, and of course, this is true in the Christian life, isn't it? If you've been a Christian for a long time, the Christian life is not complex, it's simple. Life is complex. The Christian life, principles about how to live the Christian life are essentially simple. The more deep you dig, the simpler, the clearer, the more profound things become. And Mark's lessons to us about discipleship are simple, and yet if we live them out, what a difference they make to our lives. Lesson one was listen. We're the church. We're our church. To listen clearly and obey the teaching of the Lord Jesus, the church would be steadier and stronger. Listen. Lesson two last week we saw was was pray, listen to the Lord, and then pray to him. We have so many questions unanswered for the future. But these unanswered questions are leading us as a church to depend on the Lord. Prayer is our key expression of dependence. Listen, pray, and today, be humble and serve one another. What a wonderfully powerful, transformative lesson that is. Be humble and serve one another. Now let's read today's passage, which is Mark 9, verse 30, through to chapter 10 and verse 12. They went on from there and passed through Galilee. And Jesus did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, The Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. When he is killed, after three days he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. And they came to Capernaum. And when he was in the house, he asked them, What were you discussing on the way? And of course he knows, but they kept silent. For on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. And he sat down and called the twelve, and he said to them, If anyone would be first, he must be the last of all and the servant of all. And in order to demonstrate, he took a child and put him in the midst of them. And taking him, that is the child, in his arms, he said to the disciples, Whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And whoever receives me receives not me, but the one who sent me. John said to him, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. But Jesus said, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will be able soon afterwards to speak evil of me. For the one who is not against us is for us. For truly I say to you, whoever gives you a cup of water to drink because you belong to Christ will by no means lose his reward. Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. 
If your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go to hell, to the unquenchable fire. And if your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life lame than with two feet to be thrown into hell. And if your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. It is better for you to enter the kingdom of God with one eye than with two eyes to be thrown into hell, where their worm does not die and their fire is not quenched. For everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if the salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. And he left there and went to the region of Judea and beyond the Jordan. And crowds gathered to him again. And again, as was his custom, he taught them. And Pharisees came up to him to test him and asked, Is it lawful for a man to divorce his wife? He answered them, What did Moses command you? They said, Moses allowed a man to write a certificate of divorce and to send her away. And Jesus said to them, Because of your hardness of heart, they are no longer two but one flesh. What therefore God has joined together, let not man separate. And in the home, the disciples asked him again about this matter. And he said to them, whoever divorces his wife and marries another commits adultery against her. And if she divorces her husband and marries another, she commits adultery. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. Now, Try to picture the scene in your mind. Jesus is headed to the cross. He's got his apostles with him. And he wants to teach them critical lessons about discipleship. And so he says, listen, and then pray, and now be humble and serve. I want us to notice, first of all, the kind of brush strokes he paints on the portrait of humility and service. These are the first things he says to his would-be disciples, thereby they are important in the eyes of the Lord Jesus and timeless. Just notice the list. One, you'll see it on the service sheet. Beware rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion, which have been alive and well from day one of the church. Second, What is your default mode as a disciple? Is it to put others down, especially if they are not like us or in our camp or with our labels? Or is your default mode to see the evidence of the work of God first? What a vital lesson for the church to learn. Third, beware causing other Christians to stumble and deal with sin in your life. Or have a very serious view of the seriousness of sin. One of the things we've learned from 2 Peter in the evenings is that there is either progress in the Christian life or retreat. There is no holding position of neutrality. And then fourthly and very strikingly, the Lord Jesus commends a humble commitment to discipleship in marriage. None of the Bible commentators 
can find a reason why Jesus puts this little section on marriage. It's not on divorce, it's on marriage here in the middle of this section on discipleship. Their only conclusion, their only conclusion is that in the early days of the church, the Lord Jesus impresses upon his future apostles and disciples that you need to have in the church a very, very high view of marriage. That's striking. Right at the beginning. What a contemporary line that runs to our day. Let's uh, work through these in turn. But uh, notice at the head of the list, verses 30 to 32, Jesus' example of humble sacrificial service. Let me read these verses again. They went on from there and passed through Galilee, and he did not want anyone to know, for he was teaching his disciples, saying to them, the Son of Man is going to be delivered into the hands of men, and they will kill him. And when he is killed after three days, he will rise. But they did not understand the saying and were afraid to ask him. Now, these verses function in Mark's text in two ways. One, they tell us that the pattern for our discipleship is modeled on the pattern of Jesus' messiahship. Or the nature of Jesus' ministry is marked by profound humility and a heart to serve others. That is the pattern from which discipleship takes its character. That's logical. Our lives are modeled on his. That's why Mark includes a description of Jesus' ministry at the head of this list. The second reason that is there is that we need to be very careful when we work through this list. When we try to work out if there is rivalry, ambition, or self-interest in our hearts, which there is, how do we combat that? We combat that by effort. That's what Mark's text commends us to do. But we must always remember that the effort we need to deal with these worldly traits in our life as individuals and as a church is always, always grounded in the grace of God in the gospel. We need to remember that. And these verses 30 to 33 remind us that when we address these issues in our lives, we do so on the basis of spiritual, God-given, spirit-filled capacity to do so. That's why these verses are there. Now, let's look at this non-random list that the Lord Jesus teaches us about discipleship. First, verses 33 to 37, but where rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion. They came to Capernaum. When he was in the house, he asked them, what were you discussing on the way? But they kept silent, for on the way they had argued with one another about who was the greatest. Notice the the very strong contrast, the, the juxtaposition. Jesus has just been speaking about his humility and service. The disciples, you can imagine them 12 feet behind on the road, so Jesus could not hear them, although he knows what's in their hearts. He knows what's in your heart and mine right now. Even if we kind of suppress that these issues are in our hearts, he knows really what's in our hearts. They're 12 feet behind him, and they were discussing who was the greatest. Maybe Peter and James and John said, well, Matthew, Thomas, wasn't you he took up the mountain? It was us. We're the inner circle. wonder if the concept of inner circle is alive and well in churches today. 
it was us who took up the mountain and we came back down and you were making a pretty bad job of casting out these demons. It's human nature. The Lord Jesus, though, sees into their hearts. Now, why is this kind of attitude, rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion so dangerous? Why is it the first thing the Lord Jesus talks about? Why is it on the canvas of discipleship? He takes his brush and paints rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion as the risk across that canvas before anything else. Because if there is one thing that will undermine unity, gospel partnership, it is rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion. And if there is no unity in a church locally, if there is no gospel partnership that is genuine in a city such as this, then the progress of the gospel will be constantly up against friction and checked and undermined. Let me illustrate this in our day. First, in relation to the work of the gospel in a city like Edinburgh, we have a gospel partnership. Churches working together for the sake of the gospel in this city. We have a vision for this city to see the multiplication of churches. That vision with its strategies for training and planting and growth will be fundamentally undermined if in our hearts as individual churches or as leaders of these churches, self-interest, self-promotion dominates our thinking. We will look back in 20 years with a big degree of regret. Working together for the good of the gospel depends on partnership, and partnership depends on the absence of ambition, rivalry, and self-promotion. And thank God there are, in the gospel partnership in this city, a genuine desire to set aside self-interest, but the risk is always there to build the biggest church or to train the most ministry associates or stuff like that. It really is there. Or more widely in Scotland, at a time in our history where the whole landscape of the church is changing. It is striking, and I have promised any of you who have asked me never to make any comments about the referendum coming up. Now you're all listening now, aren't you? What's he going to say? All I'm going to say is that it's not rocket science for any of us to conclude that the whole landscape of our nation is in a sense in a time of flux and change, not least spiritually. Somebody one day will write a book about this period in Scotland's spiritual history. And there is no greater need at such a time of flux and transition if we are to think expansively and collaboratively for the absence of rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion on the part of leaders. What about inside a church like ours? Is there a risk of rivalry and ambition and self-promotion? Of course there is. I've already mentioned the danger of the inner circle. It's always there, isn't it? Let's pray that it's not here. Or for those who hold positions of leadership or influence in a church, how is that leadership exercised? I'd be honest enough and say to you that during the last two years, with all the complexities we have faced, I have learned important lessons in this area. It must be exercised in humility with a servant heart. 
For instead of that, there is a manipulative, self-promoting attitude that uses power and authority to get what one wants. Now, the minister and the elders are the first in the queue to ask this question of their hearts. Is there rivalry, ambition, self-interest lurking in our hearts? Our unity as a church depends upon it. Now, if these traits are the character traits that undermine gospel partnership, then what fosters it? Well, an attitude of humility. So verse 35, Jesus sat down and called the twelve and he said to them, if anyone would be first, he must be last of all and servant of all. He says, don't aspire to be the first rather the last of all. Don't serve those who will get you on, advance your agenda. Rather serve all, the very least. It is a radical cure Jesus prescribes. And he illustrates the principle very clearly. Look at verse 36. He took a child, put him in the midst of them, and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever welcomes one such child in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. Now, in the ancient world, children were regarded as insignificant without any status. And so in taking then a child and putting that child into the midst of them, literally into the heart of the inner circle, if you like, then what Jesus was saying is this is what it means to be the servant of all. Now, children in our culture have a very different status, so we need to translate. A church family has all sorts, shoot of all sorts. Who is it we are serving who is it we regard as significant amongst us? Do we spend time with those who will get us on? Here's an illustration, hypothetically, of a potential minister after a service with all sorts of strategies and plans up his sleeve. What does he do? He kind of roves around the room, looking over people's shoulders for who the person he needs to speak to that is significant. It's classic human nature, isn't it? And a church which is healthy with a servant beating heart just embraces all with that same attitude of love and respect and integrity. Let me come at it a different way. I put myself on the block. Who do we have in our homes? Who do we invite to eat with us? Often it can be a kind of inner circle. Churches have inner circles and inner circles and inner circles. And the Lord Jesus says, come on, just break through these lines. Just break through these lines. And the Lord Jesus says, whoever receives one such person in my name receives me. Whoever receives me receives not me, but him who sent me. So when you serve, the very least, whoever they are, it is an act of devotion to the Lord Jesus and to his and our Father. Now, when this kind of thing goes on in a church family, this genuine humility and service, it makes a very powerful impact on people who are not Christians. When they come in contact with and experience this in the life of a Christian community, it is so very different. It is the world's values on their head. It is cultural norms left at the door and retranslated. It is the codes of normal social etiquette entirely reversed. Second, the Lord Jesus says to us, don't be dismissive of Christians who are not like us or in our camp. 
these were the best phrases I could find in the Bible commentators to describe what Jesus is getting at. And it's true, I think we can intuitively see this. Don't be dismissive of those who are not like me or who like the things I like or who like the songs I like to sing or who like the way things are done the way I like or those who are not in our camp. doesn't mean to say you partner up with everybody because there are big methodological differences. But nonetheless, where do we err in terms of our critical spirits? So John said to Jesus, teacher, we saw someone casting out demons in your name. We tried to stop him because he was not following us. There is an obvious irony. The disciples had hardly done a brilliant job in casting out demons themselves. It's also presumptuous what John says. We saw someone casting out demons in your name and we tried to stop him because he was not following us. It's not, he was not following you, Jesus. Us. It's that wonderful thing about the inspiration of God's word that God knew these things are alive and well today. As then. What did John and the others expect Jesus to say? If we're honest, what would you have expected had you as John gone up to Jesus and said, Jesus, you see that bloke over there? He's casting out demons in your name and he's not one of us. I would have expected Jesus to say, well, you tell him. If he didn't listen to you, I'll go and tell him. And what Jesus and Mark is doing here, I think, is exposing simply a dismissive attitude towards Christians who are not like us or in our camp, how discerning God is, it's human nature, critical spirit to put others down. Let me be awfully bold and suggest that in a church like this, and our church is still the best church in the world from my perspective, I say that to you often, I love being the minister of this church, it's genuine and there's gospel heart and godliness and humility everywhere. We need to keep working at these risks at a time of strength. I wonder if I might gently lift the lid and suggest to us that there might be a dual discourse that always goes on in a church. The kind of discourse that is public about one another. And I wonder just sometimes that if behind the scenes there's another discourse that goes on that's a little less affirming and a little more critical of people who are not like us who don't like the same things that we like? Or how do we as a church view other churches in the city? It is all too easy to think our way in style and brand or group. Our preference is the right way and the only way. I went to a, a consultation of uh, evangelical leaders earlier in the year. I don't quite know why I was there, but I did end up there. And I was down in, in, in the middle of England and we all sat around the, the room and one of, one of the people made a very pertinent point. Think of, the, think of the, the evangelical church world in our country. It's quite averse. And he said there are differences, big differences. And you can't kind of partner with everybody because you do things in different ways. You have different emphases. That's fair and right. But within that broad compass, nonetheless, we need to speak well of each other. And be thankful for gospel life and gospel progress. Especially 
in a country like Scotland, which is like a little village, striking at the wedding yesterday, you kind of almost know everybody or somebody who knows them. It's a little village and a little village spiritually that's going through this real reformation spiritually. A generosity of spirit. Jesus' response to his disciples is not what we expect. 39, do not stop him for no one who does a mighty work in my name will soon afterwards be able to speak evil of me for the one who is not against us his for us, they come telling tales, he sends them off with their tails between their legs. Now he's not, not, let me underline this, advocating tolerance where there is no truth or the affirmation where there is error. He's not saying that. And really he says with this man, well, time will tell whether he is genuine or not. But don't immediately dismiss someone who claims to do stuff in my name. And I think what he is exposing here is the default mode that habitually puts others down, simply because they are not in our camp. Just listen to the, the phrase, he or she or they or that church are not one of us. How contemporary a ring does that have? Now, verse 41, Jesus shifts ground slightly, I think. He says, I tell you the truth, anyone who gives you a cup of water... In my name, because you belong to Christ, will certainly not lose his reward. I think what he's getting at here is not the issue of, of putting other ministries or churches down. I think what he's getting at here is, is, is how do you view the kind of very humble acts of Christian service in a local church, like pouring out the juice or, or pouring out the tea and coffee? Very simple things, not high-profile stuff, not upfront stuff. And Jesus says... You're not only to serve the very least, that kind of service on the ground, that quiet, humble kind of service is the model to aspire to. And of course, such a person will not lose their reward. Now, thirdly, beware causing other Christians to stumble and deal with sin in your life. Verse 42, Jesus says, Whoever causes one of these little ones who believe in me to sin, it would be better for him if a great millstone were hung round his neck and he were thrown into the sea. Now, what is Mark getting at here? Difficult to say. Bible commentaries have different views. I think what he's getting at is that he's maybe at this stage just speaking to people in leadership in churches, ministers, elders, small group leaders, and he's saying, look, these little ones, who are the little ones? I think what he means is, is vulnerable Christians, young Christians, new converts, people in churches, and God makes us all very differently, people in churches who trust that others will teach them faithfully what the Bible will say. And Jesus says, be very, very careful, lest you do not lead these people into sin. And that is, of course, what makes so much of what is happening in the wider church in our day so tragic because Christian leaders, Christian ministers are teaching people what the Bible calls sin as good. What a tragedy that is, historically, spiritually, for a country. And the way you guard against 
leading others into sin is deal seriously with sin in your own life. And so verse 43 to 48, Jesus says, if your hand causes you to sin, cut it off. It is better for you to enter life crippled than with two hands to go into hell to the unquenchable fire. If your foot causes you to sin, cut it off. If your eye causes you to sin, tear it out. Now that language is strong and stark, isn't it? It's almost exaggerated language. But what one cannot squeeze away from with language like this is the Lord Jesus says, deal ruthlessly and rigorously with sin in your life. Just deal with it. Just sort it. Sort it for the good of the church you're in. Sort it for the good of the people you lead and disciple and nurture in the Lord. And that little phrase at the end, for everyone will be salted with fire. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its saltiness, how will you make it salty again? Have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Now, my Bible commentaries just go mad here. This big section. What is this all about? I think what Jesus is doing is just taking a couple of sayings, or Mark is taking a couple of sayings of Jesus. The saying about being purified with fire. Fire purifies us. It burns up the dross. And let that purification of God's word burn up the dross in your life. And salt, what does salt do? Salt preserves and arrests decay. What is the job of the Christian leader? What is the job of the church? To be savor, to be salt, to preserve. And notice just at the end of verse 50, Jesus says, have salt in yourselves and be at peace with one another. Be at peace with one another. He kind of goes right back full circle to the rivalry bit at the beginning. How do you combat rivalry, ambition, self-promotion? Answer, be humble, but also be godly. Humility, godliness, unity. Finally, verses 1 to 12 of chapter 10. Now, this is a, a very provocative and difficult passage for sure. You'll have picked that up as we read it. In fact, I've never heard a sermon that deals with it. They miss it out. We can't do that. Let me just nail down two things. One, Jesus is not contradicting what he says elsewhere in Scripture. There are biblical permissible grounds for divorce. He's not contradicting that. Nor is he saying that forgiveness is not always there for people where there is failure in marriage, like in any other area of life. Yesterday, when I married Craig and Louisa, I said to them before they made their promises, Why are you making these promises? Because marriages are not perfect. Why are you making these promises? Because you will fail. Jesus is not prohibiting divorce on biblical grounds, nor is he saying that he will not forgive sin in marriage as in any other ear. What are you saying to his disciples? What are you saying to leaders in his church? What are you saying to Christians in any generation is I need you to take marriage, which is my gift to humanity, for the stability of your society, for the flourishing of family life, marriage as the safe context for a relationship between a man and a woman, 
and hold that in the highest possible esteem before the eyes of the watching world. That's what he's saying. That's what he's saying. And that's striking and contemporary right at the beginning of his teaching on discipleship. I was saying in the marriage service yesterday that, that every time I conduct a marriage service nowadays, it seems to have an edge and a power and a relevance and a resonance to it that speaks so powerfully of God's good intent and God's good purpose for us as humanity. And so, let me summarize the Lord Jesus says to us, beware rivalry, ambition, and self-promotion. It lurks in all our hearts. The antidote, well, seek to be the very last. How? Serve the very least. Look at those who are on the fringes and serve them, love them, care for them in your church family. Don't be dismissive of Christians who are not like us or in our camp. Don't affirm what is wrong. Don't call error truth. But what is the default mode of our hearts? Is it to put others down or to build them up? And beware that double discourse in a church. The surface stuff and the behind the scenes stuff. Beware causing other Christians to stumble and fall away, particularly new converts, young Christians, those who trust that you will teach them the truth. How do you prevent that? Well, take sin very seriously in your life and commit as individuals, as couples, as churches to discipleship in marriage. Hold up marriage in your culture and in your time. That's what he's saying, how striking that is. Well, let's pray that as a church we will live like this. Our Father, we thank you for this teaching in your word that is so timely and so relevant and so clear. And we pray, Lord, that as a church family, we would deal with these issues in our lives if they are there. Help us to be humble, servant-hearted. Help us, Lord, to be intentional about who it is we speak to, encourage and welcome and share the gospel with and Help us, Lord, not to be dismissive of those who are not like us or in our camp. Help us, Lord, to be vigilant to sin in our life and not lead others into sin. Help us to be committed humbly before you to marriage in our own marriages and more widely in our culture and in our society. And Lord, how do we do this? Well, help us to remember that the Lord Jesus is our model of servant-hearted humility Now that in the gospel and by the Holy Spirit, you give us all that we need to live in this way. And if we live in this way, we will be united. There will be genuine gospel partnership in this church and in this city and indeed across the country. And if there is genuine gospel partnership, then the gospel will progress without hindrance. Help us in our day and generation, our loving Father, to live in accordance with this pattern, this picture that the Lord Jesus describes for us. And may it all be for your honor and your glory and the progress of your gospel. In Jesus' name.